Hello and welcome to NDIS Know How, a podcast series that asks how can parents get the very best NDIS plan and sufficient funding to support their kid. This podcast is written and made by me, Melanie Dimmitt, the author of Special, and powered by HireUp, a disability support platform connecting families like mine with top-notch support workers. In this episode, I'm chatting with the lovely Haley Field, Director of Ali Disability Support Services, an organization that helps families on the NDIS, primarily through support coordination. Haley and her husband, Dave, live in regional South Australia. They have four daughters, the youngest of which is Pippa, who's four. Pippa's diagnosis, and please excuse any mispronunciation here, is Weidman-Steiner syndrome. For Pippa, this means she's tube-fed, has respiratory issues, some behaviour issues, and an intellectual disability. She also has sleep issues. It's not uncommon for Haley and Dave to start their days very early with Pippa, and she tends to wake up frequently throughout the night. And she's also had really bad sleep apnea for most of her life as well. So there's a lot of competing factors, but it got to May last year and Hubby and I were done. We were so tired and it's not a tired that just getting someone to have her overnight would fix. Like we were just exhausted and I rang our early childhood partner and went, not coping here, like what can you do? And they're like, oh, maybe you could talk to the OT and see if you could maybe get a support worker. But because of her age, it's parental responsibility and and all that sort of stuff. That right there is the main thing I want to ask Hayley about. And it's something families of young kids on the scheme struggle with. What is parental responsibility in the context of the NDIS? What should we be responsible for and where can we have support? But first, let's get back to what was going on in Haley's family last year. At the same time they were dealing with the extreme sleep deprivation, Pippa had a PEG feeding tube inserted, which I can tell you takes quite a bit of adjusting to. And then suddenly, things went from bad to worse. In June of the same year, I found out that I had cervical cancer. And in that time... There was no one that could feed Pippa because she just had her peg for like four weeks and she was really traumatised and no one enjoyed it feeding her. (laughs) It was not the fun part of the day. And so we were. that's when we came into a support coordinator and found out who they were and we went to the NDIS and said, um, help, you know, because at that point I had to have an open cup hysterectomy where they were taking everything. So ovaries, cervix, like everything was going. And then I was told I needed 12 weeks of treatment, which meant living four hours away from home because, like I said, we live in regional South Australia and having three young kids at home. And we went to NDIS going help. And they said, well, sorry, if you can't care for your child, that's actually a child protection issue. That's not an NDIS issue. (laughs) So um, it was just in one of, like, it would have been a horrific experience anyway, finding out you've got cancer, I can honestly say. But just the, the whole trying to, Workout logistics and care for Pippa was an absolute nightmare. And if we did not have a support coordinator, she was amazing. I get goosebumps talking about it. She just, she helped us and she changed our life. Um, She was just amazing. So we did end up getting a plan review and a change of circumstances, but we had to, again, we had to tap into Carers SA funding because obviously after my surgery, I couldn't lift Pippa for yeah. six, 
eight weeks and I was so unwell. Um, never take my physicality for granted ever again. Um, yeah. And so Pippa, she was still in a cot. You know, she's still, um, she's quite small and still with all of her, you know, challenges and things like that. She really relies on being carried and her low tone and just yeah. the regulation was awful. And so if it wasn't for this support coordinator who was able to tap into the Carers SA funding that got us some emergency respite, to be able to have a support worker in the home whilst we went through the change of circumstances thing. Like, oh, it's just, it was awful. And it's really then been the catalyst though to me being here talking to you today because I was like, she changed so much for us and our support worker has changed our life. We love her. Um, And so to be able to do that for other families is really, really humbling. It's a real privilege. What advice do you have for families of young kids like us who are being told by the NDIS, you can't have this support because it's your parental responsibility? How do we push back against that? So we push back because first things first is that we actually look at the legislation of NDIS and parental responsibility is literally termed just what, you know, they're our responsibility, they're our kids. There is nothing in the legislation that says parental responsibility is X, Y, Z. So I found that so interesting because it seems to be this fallback. You know, it's always this fallback. Oh, no, you can't get that because it's parental responsibility. So the first things first is that in the legislation, nothing is actually stipulated in terms of, you know, taking your kids to 20 appointments a week is parental responsibility. Nothing is like that is in the legislation. So I think that's really important. The other thing that I think is, is that we don't understand the real crux of how the funding works. So let's look at our core support. We've got four subcategories of funding in core support. And for those, um, I didn't know this when I was just, and I'm using funny ears here, just a parent on the NDIS. This is only as a support coordinator. So I would just go to my planning meetings and go, I want more core funding so that I can get a support worker. And they go, no, that's that's not how it works. So it's about having really clear, um, and your team, your especially OTs, they understand those different levels of funding. So when you're asking for a support worker, It's about painting a really clear picture about what are they going to do when they are in your home. So if there is a two-parent household, we need to draw the picture of, okay, and I'm going to use gendered language here, but mum's at home, dad's at work, all right? So already dad's gone. And then we've got just mum. Now there's two other kids. And so how can mum be feeding, be suctioning, be doing physio, speech exercises, physio exercise, I think I've said that, OT exercises, feeding exercises. When we look at what does a normal nuclear family look like, the lack of a better word, and then how are those responsibilities on this one primary caregiver exceeding what is termed as usual parental responsibility and so it's about painting those pictures and so in our evidence what would a support worker be doing when they're in the home so it might be Melanie you're cooking dinner and helping Odie with her you know she's young so she still requires a lot of co-regulation and support from you but Arlo needs x y and z 
So how can you physically be doing that? So we want a support worker funded under core, under assistance with daily activities to bath him, to help feed him, to help dress him. And so this is what your evidence sort of starts to look like. And that's how we need to paint a clearer picture not simply, unfortunately, it can't be, I'm exhausted, I'm not coping, can I please have a support worker? Is it worthwhile? I've had advice from other guests saying, make a list of, and this sucks, but we have to do it, make a mm-hmm. list of what a typical, Arlo's nearly seven, what a typical seven-year-old is capable mm-hmm. of doing, put Arlo next to that list and show all of the things that he's not able to do. Is that useful? To a point, yes, but it is. Um, One thing that really annoys me with NDIS is they don't, whilst parental letters, and so I have all of our beautiful families do, I hate saying it, care burden scales and care impact. Is that what it's called? Care burden scale? Yeah. It's awful. That needs a rebrand. Exactly. So I need to find a different one because the one that I use is literally called a care caregiver burden scale it's horrible and Mm. so I always preface that with my families going I'm really sorry um but if you can so yes if you want to do that but what I find actually works better is an OT assessment which and the functional capacity assessment if you have never had a functional capacity assessment done for your little person or big person just because our kids turn 18 doesn't make them not our kids anymore so a functional capacity assessment going well a seven-year-old could button up his own shirt a seven-year-old can put himself on the toilet a seven-year-old is probably at the point of showering themselves and dressing themselves and this is where our amazing you know, non-typical children are who are way more interesting, if you ask me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Totally agree. Never boring. Yeah, Um, totally agree. And so, so having that in that functional capacity assessment really digs down on sort of what a neurotypical seven-year-old is doing and what your child is doing. Um, And that to me carries a lot more weight than you sort of doing it um and comparing it and I just try we have enough to do like we have enough to do the reason you're asking for a support worker is because you're exhausted and you don't have time to do this but then it's that oxy you know that oxymoron because but then find the time to make a list of what your day looks like and so yeah so if you can outsource that to their therapists that's what I do and that's what the funding is there for you know OTs and speeches and psychologists and all that they should if you have a good one as soon as you say we're going for a plan review they should be able to go right this is what we need to demonstrate um this is what we want and so what I do as a support coordinator I go to the OTs look I also need to make sure that our clients, allied health providers love us as much as we love them because there would be no NDIS funding without allied health providers. They are amazing. And so what we tend to do is I talk to the family, Mel, you might say, right, we need 20 hours of support work a week to make us, you know, just keep our head above water. And so then I go to the OTs and I go, right, this is what the family need. What can we do? What assessments have you got up your sleeves? 
to demonstrate how we can justify that. And it's a real collaborative approach. Um, and then I copy and paste the recommendations that we want from the families to all of the providers. So the exact same recommendations are on all the reports. Yeah. Awesome. And it's coming through loud and clear from each and every piece of exactly. evidence. Hey, yeah. how do we get you? I don't have a support coordinator. How do we justify the need for one with the NDIS? Um, so again, it's about demonstrating how it will be useful for the long-term um, benefit of the participant. So when we think about it, back to the crux of it, the NDIS is an insurance scheme. So if we invest now, what are we going to be saving later on? Okay. And so with young kids, you can get the term of parental responsibility thrown at you. Like it's, no, it's your responsibility as a parent to find a speech, to find an OT. So talk about the fact that you are done. You're exhausted. Um, talk about the fact of what will be the impact on your child because you are so exhausted you don't have time to source a speech pathologist. You don't have time to source foundational skill programs because you're working or you're tired or you just shouldn't have to bloody do it. Yeah, yeah. Just let me um, be mum for two yeah, seconds. Yeah. yeah. I am not a clinical care coordinator. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the other thing too is like the early childhood partners, they can't actually recommend people like in the LACs. They can only um, steer you in the direction. So, for instance, if you go to them and say, I want a speech pathologist, they technically can only go to registered providers. So that is already putting a whole other barrier because I'm an unregistered provider, um, yeah. like just complete um, transparency. I'm still an unregistered provider. Yeah. Um, and they literally print it out and go, here's the list of speech pathologists in your area. Would you like me to connect you with one of them or or whatever? You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's it's not, whereas we as support coordinators, we contact them and go, hey, this is the family we're looking for. This is this little person's challenges. You know, what do you specialise in? Because as we know, I didn't until I became a mum of a kid with needing speech pathologist, but we have a feeding therapist who is a speech pathologist and a speech pathologist for communication and language. Now, it's really important. They're very different and we need to find that. And then also when you've got complex kids and 50 million appointments, we look for service providers who will travel to the home or look for service providers who can do physio and OT in the same sessions. So it's all that sort of like all that stuff where we're trying to take the load off the caregiver but you don't get that on that level of support from the planner or early childhood partner if only Haley could be delivered in a welcome basket to families who are new to the NDIS it's wonderful that she's working to help as many of us as she can and if you're keen to connect with her and the Ali disability support services team you'll find a link to them in the show notes a huge thanks to Haley for sharing oodles of helpful information in our chat and thanks also to Hira for supporting me in making this podcast. I'll catch you again soon on NDIS Know How.